that's for another day. Okay, so we were talking about nonlinear optics last time. We did an introduction and just sort of um, introduced the main processes. Didn't get into too much math. Uh, we'll get into a little more today, although I think actually we'll spend the bulk of today doing drawing pictures and trying to get an understanding for what we call phase matching. Um, and I think this is where I got to last time. That looks familiar. So I'm just going to go back uh, a slide or two to sort of recap where we were. Um, we said that for efficient nonlinear interactions to occur, so efficient, I mean you have one or more waves coming into a, a material, a nonlinear material, producing one or more waves of different frequency. In order for those new waves to build up um, as you go through the crystal, you need three different conservation laws to be met. Conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, and then uh, conservation of photon flux. Well, conservation of photon flux doesn't really constrain us in any sense. It just allows us to see how the intensities are changing as you go through. Conservation of energy gives us this relationship between three interacting photons. So if omega-1 is less than omega-2, is less than omega-3, say less than, less than or equal to, then, for example, in um, a process where you have two photons interacting and their energy gets converted into a third photon of higher frequency, this conservation of energy just tells you how you take those two input photons and produce, it just tells you what frequency sort of output photon you would produce. Um, if you run that interaction in reverse where you start with a high frequency photon and it spontaneously decays into two lower frequency photons, it tells you um, the relationship between the energy or the frequencies of those two lower energy photons but doesn't uniquely constrain what they are. Right, so there's there's an infinite number of ways you can combine two different frequencies to add up to be a third. Okay, so that's conservation of energy. Conservation of momentum is what we're going to spend most of today talking about. Because conservation of momentum requires that the incident k vectors add up to give you the output k vector. And in general, these should be vectors. Should have a vector notation. The vectors have to add up. Momentum is a vector quantity. And I drew them without vector symbol because I'm assuming they're collinear. So we can just talk about their magnitudes. The input momentum has to equal the output momentum. And I said that because you can write k as n omega over c, you could write this as uh, n omega plus n omega equals n omega. And the over c's all cancel. And that if the material doesn't have dispersion such that n1 equals n2 equals n3, then this just uh, you can either say this follows from conservation of energy or this leads to conservation of energy. So those two, two requirements are degenerate. Most materials do have dispersion, though. So if omega 1, 2, and 3 are different frequencies, you would expect the indices to be different at those frequencies. So this actually is a unique constraint in addition to conservation of energy. And phase matching is a term that describes what you can do to the crystal to try to force this constraint to be met at the same time that this one is met. Okay? So there's things you can do. You can change the angle, the temperature, the direction of your beams to try to force the momentum to be conserved for 
a given set of input and output frequencies. So in order to understand, in order to calculate what the different indices of our fraction are, we have the uh, Selmayr equation, which lets us calculate the index as a function of wavelength. Because it's a function of wavelength, we can find, once we plot it, the index at different points. And we can see that in general, um, if we just look, say, at the ordinary index, if we pick two different frequencies, two different wavelengths, they're not going to have the same, same index. So the trick is to have, say, uh, one or two of your beams be, say, ordinary polarization. If the other beam is extraordinary, you can tune its index. So I'm considering second harmonic generation. Say you start with the input photons at, uh, let's just say, uh, 1.2 microns. Input photons at 1.2 microns, the index of refraction that they see is anywhere from this point to this point. If those are involved in a second harmonic generation process, then the second harmonic frequency corresponds to a wavelength of what? Right, half the wavelength. So twice the frequency, half the wavelength, uh, 0.6 microns. So we have 1.2 microns as our input, 0.6 microns as our output. This is what we call normal dispersion, where the index is going down as the wavelength goes up. And so the second harmonic over here, for the same polarization state, is going to have a higher index than the fundamental fundamental being the lower frequency. And so what you might do is you might make your fundamental be ordinary polarized and arrange for the second harmonic to be extraordinary polarization and adjust the angle such that you tune that extraordinary polarization to this point right here where they match. And then you'll have what we call phase matching. You'll have the momentum conservation being met. Um, you could also. Yes. Okay, and in, in, in that one, if we have omega one equal omega two, and that's the uh, one point two micron light, we say that that light is going to be polarized as an ordinary wave. This is for a uniaxial crystal. Then the index it sees will be given by this point on this orange curve, right? So. Omega-1 and omega-2 are ordinary polarization. And then omega-3 is the second harmonic that's generated at 600 nanometers. And because we want to be able to tune that by adjusting the crystal angle, or the propagation angle, that has to be an extraordinary wave. Right? So we have two ordinary waves and one extraordinary wave. So omega-1 and omega-2 are both ordinary. Omega-3 is extraordinary. We call that type 1 phase matching. And there's three different waves, each with two possible polarization states. So there's eight possible ways you can combine those polarizations that are given in this table. And each one of those unique combinations has a different name. Right? So type 1 phase matching, type 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, correspond to the different combinations of ordinary and extraordinary. Um, the table, however, 
needs a little more explanation than that because you can see some odd things. Right? You can see type 2 is labeled 2A, type 3 is labeled 2B, type 6 is labeled 2B, 7 is labeled 2A, and 8 is labeled 1. Right? <coughs> so that's obvious, right? Obvious why that would be? Yeah. Um, if you look in the literature, you will probably not find reference to anything other than type 1 or type 2 phase matching. Um, if you contact the company and ask about the crystals they manufacture, they'll say this can be used with type 1 phase matching, this can be used with type 2 phase matching. You won't hear about these other types. They exist. I mean, they, they exist in theory. But let me explain why we always talk about type 1 and type 2. Um, so the first thing is materials generally have this normal dispersion where the index is decreasing as a function of wavelength. And what that means is, um, well, that and the fact that most nonlinear materials, by chance, are negative uniaxial crystals, means that the extraordinary ray, or the extraordinary polarization, is always less than the ordinary. And the higher frequency wave is always <coughs> higher index. So what you want is you want the increase in index that a company is going to a higher frequency to be offset by the decrease that comes from having the extraordinary polarization. Okay, so you generally want the higher frequency to be extraordinary polarized, assuming you have a negative uniaxial crystal. And like I said, most of those are. And that cuts out 5, 6, 7, and 8 from our table right away. And that's one reason why we hear about type 1 and 2 the most. A um, couple other comments. Type 4 and 5 don't allow you any control. Uh, if you look at type 5, ordinary polarization, ordinary polarization, and ordinary polarization. You can't vary the indices of any of those values by adjusting the angle. So if you have this geometry where you want to take two ordinary polarization <laughs> photons and produce an ordinary polarized photon, um, your crystal needs to just a priori meet the index matching requirements. There's no way to tune it by adjusting the angle. So type 5 is not a useful way to adjust the uh, phase matching conditions. Likewise, type 4 isn't. These are E waves, and they are tunable by adjusting the angle, but they're all basically tuning at the same time. And so um, in general, you get very little ability to control the uh, the phase matching if all three polarization states are the same. So type 4 and type 5 basically never used for phase matching. Okay, So that leaves 1, 2, and 3. And in the case of second harmonic generation, where you have two input photons that are at the same frequency, then omega 1 and omega 2 are the, the same frequency. Now you may have different components of the polarization interacting. But whether you say omega 1 is E and omega 2 is O or vice versa, you're really describing the same thing. That's why type 3 is often called type 2. Okay, so in general, we refer to an interaction as type 1 if the um, two lower frequency photons that are interacting have the same polarization state. 
And so that's the case for this literal type 1 as well as this literal type 8. So this type 8 generally gets referred to as type 1 because in the more general sense, type 1 simply means that your lower frequency photons are the same polarization, regardless of what that polarization is, whether it's O or E. Likewise, type 2 generally means the two lower frequency photons have opposite polarization states. And whether that's EO or OE, most people don't differentiate between. So both of these get termed type 2. And likewise, both of these, 6 and 7, then also get termed type 2. Okay, so you probably only hear about type 1 or 2. But for completeness, I put up this full chart. Okay, so um, let's look at uh, let's look at these different types of phase matching and how we sort of picture what's going on and turn that into mathematical expressions that could be used to find what angles we would expect to have phase matching at. We use normal shells. Right? We introduced normal shells when we talked about propagation through crystals. Uh, we've used them a couple times since then. We use them extensively in nonlinear optics. Remember, normal shells, what are normal shells? What do they tell me? What are they a plot of? Uh, not quite. Yeah, so what's being plotted? So this is the origin. Uh, what's being plotted is a function of angle of propagation is the possible principal indices of refraction. Along the optical axis, there's only one possible index. At any other direction, there may be multiple. So this is a uniaxial crystal. Um, there are two intersections. If it were biaxial crystal, there'd still be two intersections. I just wouldn't have these two ellipses. Um, right, so we can think of this as sort of a, a uh, polar plot of the index of refraction as a function of propagation angle for both the ordinary and extraordinary indices of refraction. Now, so in this green circle and ellipse, which one of these represents the ordinary index? Which one represents the extraordinary? Circle's ordinary. So by definition, the ordinary index is, uh, is the one that is constant as a function of angle. The extraordinary can vary from two extreme values that lie along the principal axes. And so if these are the normal shells at omega-3, at the higher frequency, at the lower frequency, the normal shells will probably look the same, only smaller. There's, why are they smaller? Lower index of refraction for normal dispersion at lower frequencies, <coughs> so the shells are smaller. It's possible that the aspect ratio could change slightly, but for the most part, when we draw these, we'll just sort of draw the same, same shells, just smaller. And then if we take these two drawings of the normal shells and we superimpose them, then we can look for points where they intersect. So for example, right here, there's an intersection of the ordinary shell at omega-3 with the extraordinary shell at omega-1 and omega-2. 
So I'm, I'm looking at second harmonic generation here where I have my uh, input photons, two photons of the same frequency producing uh, a sum frequency at twice that frequency. So if I have two photons that are extraordinary polarized at the input, their index of refraction will be given by the distance from the origin to this shell in the direction of propagation. Likewise, for the output photon at 2 omega, if it's ordinary polarized, its index of refraction will be just NO, regardless of direction. So if I find the point at which those two shells intersect mathematically, that is equivalent to setting the index of the extraordinary polarization at omega equal to the ordinary polarization at 2 omega. And there's only one angle at which that will occur. Or I say one angle. Uh, there's multiple angles, but they're symmetric about the optical axis. So I only need to find one of them. But this is type 8, right? OK, so what type is this? Uh, let's just figure out the incident photons are represented by the red shell. They ordinary or extraordinary? They're both extraordinary. And then the output is the green shell that's ordinary. So I have EEO. We should go back to that table and look for EEO. It is type 8. EEO. Um, well, it's not anomalous dispersion. It's a positive uniaxial crystal. And Extraordinary is larger. Okay. So you take the ordinary, the circle, and you stretch it as opposed to squashing it. Um, so there certainly are positive uniaxial crystals. Just there's m more, the negative uniaxial crystals are more prevalent um, in devices which use nonlinear interactions. Okay. So. So we can solve for that angle right, by writing an expression for the extraordinary index as a function of angle. So for non-omega-1 equals non-omega-2, do we have three normal shells that would have to be important on that? OK, so let's consider type 2 phase matching. So type 2 phase matching is sort of an example of what you're describing. Um, so let me ask, is type 2 phase matching possible for the normal shells that I drew? These normal shells represent a crystal with a certain ordinary index and extraordinary index at two different frequencies. No. So I say type 2 phase matching. Really here, I think what I mean is type 7. OK, so let me see if I can combine an ordinary and an extraordinary polarized input photon produce an ordinary output. So I think what I'm going to do is just draw on the board, just augment my drawing. OK, so what I want, um, let me go back to my momentum matching expression for collinear interaction. So I don't need to consider the direction of these decay vectors. They're all collinear. I'll just 
require their magnitudes be equal. So I'll write the k as n omega over c. C's all cancel. That's a general expression for three-wave mixing. Okay, now let me constrain this and say it's second harmonic generation. I need some constraint uh, in order to go further. So for second harmonic generation, omega 1 equals omega 2. Through conservation of energy, omega 3 is equal to 2. Let me just call this omega. It's equal to 2 omega. Okay, so that gives us a little bit more uh, constraint. Then I can say n1 omega plus n2 omega equals n3 of 2 omega. I can divide through the omegas, divide both sides by 2. And what I get is the average index for the two input photons, or the lower frequency photons, equals that of the higher frequency photon. Okay. And you'd have a similar expression if, if these weren't at the same frequency. You'd have to have the average index for the two input photons equaling the output photon. Well, the omegas don't cancel, though. You'd have to write something like uh, x omega 1 plus 1 minus x omega 2. That right equals so one goes up, the other goes down. You can see if that's right. This is conservation of energy. So let's let omega one equals x omega. Omega 2 equal 1 minus x omega. Then omega 3, yeah, it's going to equal. That's just giving me omega. That should be, yeah. Uh, So your average, eh, I'd have to work it out. I haven't, I haven't done that, but it might not be an exact average. It might be a weighted average with this term x in it. Um, but for the second harmonic generation, it's the reason I haven't worked it out is because it's a lot easier to just draw the two, the two normal shells and to try to draw a third, and then each one has two, two shells. So I tend to stick to the simpler case. But the, you start from these conservation equations, you can derive the the phase matching condition uh, pretty straightforwardly. Okay, so if this is the constraint that we need to meet uh, graphically, how would we represent that? If for type 2, oh, and let me say for type 2 phase matching, n1 is n0, n2 is NE. 
an N3. It depends on whether the type 2 is type 2 or the type 2 is type 7. Um, in our example, in our example, which uh, let's figure out which types of phase matching are possible without knowing okay. that. Okay, so if if we want to consider the cases where N1 and N2 are opposite, right, then the average value of the indices of refraction at omega 1 and omega 2, the average value I can plot here. This is dotted line. It's halfway in between the two shells. Right, so you'd agree that's the average value. Then I can draw that on this plot over here. And I can ask, does that dotted line intersect either of the green shells. Okay. If it does, then type 2 phase matching is possible. And now I have to ask, which shell does it cross? The ordinary. So this will only be possible in this particular crystal when N3 is NO. And I can go back to my table, and that's six and type 6 and 7. Okay, so I have OEO or EOO, type 6 and 7. Um, if this were a negative uniaxial crystal, that would be, this would have to be any. OK, so this particular example has two different types of phase matching possible, one at that intersection and one at this intersection. Right, so there's two different possible phase matching angles. That's theta m for type 2 phase matching. This is theta m for type 1 phase matching. Matching. Matching angle. So it's, it's a specific angle. It's not just some arbitrary theta. It's, it's nope. Nope. Just means matching. OK, so let's write mathematically what this point of intersection is, right, so that we could solve it. Is it done? Well, it's done for type 1 phase matching. Let's do it for type 2 phase matching. We need the average value of the ordinary and extraordinary index at omega. So the average value means I'm going to take two numbers and divide them by 2. One of those numbers is the ordinary index. NO at omega. I guess I'll call it, this is a functional form, NO of omega. And the other one is NE of omega at angle theta m. Okay, and so I'm going to use an expression that looks like 1 over NE squared of theta. This is just the expression for calculating the extraordinary index at an angle theta. Uh, if theta is the direction of propagation relative to the optical axis, then this looks like uh, so I'm going to use this form. I'm going to make sure that I evaluate all these quantities at omega when I plug them in. So 
I can write this as like a, so this term on the right gets gets raised to the minus one half to give me any. So So that's the average index of refraction, seen for the two input fields. I have to equal so the right-hand side is going to be a lot easier. And equal the ordinary index at two omega. Okay, and that we can solve. Okay, so I mean, let's let's do that just to demonstrate that it can be done. I'm sure, you believe that it can be done, but it's uh, maybe not as bad as it looks. Just gonna rewrite this. I've got a sine and a cosine. It'll be easier to solve if I get those in the same form. So I'm going to use, uh, let's say, cosine squared theta is 1 minus sine squared theta. Right. Plug, that, uh, plug that in over here. And I'll have an expression, an algebraic expression in terms of sine squared theta. I can solve it for sine squared theta. And then from there, it's trivial to get uh, theta. What I'm going to do is actually uh, take this term over here. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Uh, go ahead and do that now. This is going to be to the minus 1 half. OK, so now I'm going to take both sides, and I'm going to raise it to the minus 2. Separate out the terms. I'll bring uh, terms that don't depend on sine theta over to the other side.
say minus 1 over n naught squared. And that leaves terms that do depend on sine theta. I'll factor out that sine squared theta. I think at that point, you can see where this is going. It's about the same amount of work to solve for type 1 phase matching. Um, this is the expression we get for type 1 phase matching, where we have the extraordinary index at one frequency equaling the ordinary index at the other frequency. It, there's a few less terms. You still have to take the square root because you're still going to solve for sine squared of theta. Right, but in this one, one of us could have the square root too. In type 2. Well, they can both be solved with a little bit of algebra. They can both be solved very oh, easily on the computer. Um, but What's important is to be able to find graphically where this solution is. If you can find it graphically using the normal shells, um, that is a good way to produce your equations and assign them meaning. Right? If there's eight different types of phase matching, there's positive and negative uniaxial crystals, um, trying to learn an expression or a single expression that you can apply is, is almost impossible. You have to start uh, using this general method. All right, so here's a negative uniaxial crystal. Right, so now it's the extraordinary index is less than the ordinary. So our ellipse is squashed inwards. But the same method applies. If we want to find the phase matching angle for second harmonic generation, we can draw the normal shells at, om at omega and at 2 omega, superimpose them, and look for where those two different frequency shells overlap. Right, and they they uh, cross right here. What type of phase matching is that? So our input, our lower frequency wave is ordinary for both photons along the shell. Yeah, and the output is extraordinary, OOE. If you look it up in the table, that's type 1. The real type 1. Um, I could ask, so is type 2 phase matching possible? As drawn, no. you want to describe, Michael? The average value is like a dotted line, right? Well, it could cross right there. It doesn't cross. If it doesn't, because the average value starts below the extraordinary uh, index at 2 omega, 
And because at its extreme value it's still below, then it never crosses. So what would the criteria be? How would you write the criteria for a negative uniaxial crystal like I've drawn? What, would what relationship would be necessary in order for type 2 phase matching to be possible? Or let's start a little bit easier. What relationship is necessary for type 1 phase matching to be possible? Recall that this point of intersection represents type 1 phase matching. Okay, so that's true, but without solving for the angle, if you're just given, let me, let me be a little bit more precise about what I, I want to ask. Okay, so given n naught and ne at frequency omega. These are not, this is not as a function of angle. This is the extreme value that NE can have. And N naught at 2 omega, or NO at 2 omega, and NE at 2 omega. What relationship has to exist between those? Say for type 1 phase matching, in a negative uniaxial crystal with normal dispersion. So Which is what I've, I've drawn a, a negative uniaxial crystal with normal dispersion on this slide. Right. No. It's not. That's, uh, it is and it's not. Right. This. No, no, not that one. I meant the, the one underneath the, the end, right on the radical gradient. Yeah, that one. No, that's, that's what you want. But that's as a function of angle. And I'm not given values as a function of angle. Uh, so I want a more general expression. You want to get up and point, out, point that out? Mm, uh, okay. So that would be uh, this at its maximum value. Where is that on the curve? Uh, <coughs> green. Right there, yep. That point. Needs to be what? Uh, greater than or equal to uh, the minimal value. Less than or equal to. Oh, yeah, yeah, it has to be inside. Inside, yeah. Yep. That's right. So we can say that NE at 2 omega has <coughs> got to be less than NO at omega. All right, for type 2 phase matching with the same conditions, negative uniaxial crystal with normal dispersion, then what do we need? So we need NE at 2 omega to be less than What's this? Uh -huh, to be less than the average of N 
Yes. So the average of NO omega and NE omega is halfway in between. That was where, if we drew that dotted line, that would be the smallest value for that dotted line right there. And we would need this green line to lie within that so that it crosses it at some point. So that looks like NE omega plus NO omega over 2 has got to be greater than NE of 2 omega. Um, so here I'm assuming that I'm doing second harmonic generation, and omega 3 is twice omega 1 and 2. Um, I think if you can understand this, you can work out for yourself if you ever need to the necessary conditions for, for more general cases, but I don't think there's a whole lot of value in me working through those. Yeah. Yes, you, you can work through it. Um, there's just, and there be quickly become so many possible cases. Yeah. Uh, already here, there's, so these are not completely general. Um, they require a certain type of crystal and a certain type of dispersion. Those are the most common ones, but. Um, okay, so let's do an example. Let's look at potassium dihydrogen phosphate. It's a crystal commonly used for nonlinear interactions. No one ever calls it that. We call it KDP. So um, determine the type of phase matching to use for second harmonic generation with a fundamental wavelength of 694. 694 is what color? It's red. Uh, what would the second harmonic be? What wavelength and what color is that? Three, yeah, so 345 <laughs> roughly, uh, 347.15. And that would be what? Yeah, deep violet, ultraviolet, somewhere in that transition. Okay, uh, and determine the phase matching angle. We've been given these values. Probably the first thing that you would do if you knew you needed to do second harmonic generation and you had this as your pump, you would look up the Selmayr equations or if you are fortunate enough to be, uh, some manufacturers of the crystals will list the index at certain commonly used wavelengths. Um, you could just take them from the, their listing, or you could use the Selmayr equations to calculate these values. That's the first thing you'd do. Um, then you can draw some of those normal shells. Right, so is this a positive or a negative uniaxial crystal? Negative, why? It doesn't. <laughs> but, well, because n is less than n. n is less than n. So it's negative, and when we draw the ellipses, that means the, the ellipse is squashed in the horizontal direction. Um, normal dispersion, I'm assuming normal dispersion, I actually can explicitly check it. At higher frequencies, the index goes up, so my green shells are bigger. And when we're saying the requirements for whether phase matching is possible all rely on the values along this axis. So it's helpful if you can plot this axis to scale, or maybe not the whole thing to scale, but at least sort of this region right here to scale. It doesn't really matter that this is to scale or the sort of the offset on that. 
Um, but it's helpful if you can do that to scale. It's not necessary because you can always extract these sort of general relationships and see if they're met. Um, okay, so the negative uniaxial, we can just check if we have type 1 phase matching possible. Does the green curve cross the red curve? The green curve can go as low as 1.487 at this point, and this red circle is always at 1.506. The green curve starts at greater than 1.506 here, and it gets less than 1.506 there, so it must cross. So phase matching is possible there. We're going from an input or a lower frequency uh, ordinary polarization to a higher frequency extraordinary, OOE, type 1. Um, so I think the question was what types of phase matching are possible. For completeness, we should check the other possibilities. Um, type 2 phase matching would require that the average value between these two red curves would have to be greater than this minimum value for the green curve. That was this criteria. The, okay. Yeah, the average value for the two is like... Uh, one, it's halfway between 1.466 and 1.506, so like 1.486. Yeah. Okay, so we will deal with the case of incomplete phase matching when we look at the math. Okay, we'll see. That's right. Phase matching isn't possible. Okay, and uh, like I said, when we get to the math, uh, I'll try to describe what's, what's going on, why phase matching is so important. Um, just a short picture right now without having the equations to point to is you these waves propagating along. If the index is different, they're going to drift out of phase. You generate some second harmonic initially, and it propagates along and it drifts out of phase with the field that's generating more second harmonic. When it's drifted pi out of phase, the new second harmonic you're creating is out of phase with the old second harmonic you already had, and they start canceling. And the distance it takes before that happens is called the coherence length. And the greater your phase mismatch, the shorter the coherence length, and the less distance you can propagate and get buildup. OK, uh, let's do another example at, that shows us how critical these, uh, these values are. It shows us how getting close doesn't always give us uh, close to what we expect. Um, let's look at an OPO, an optical parametric oscillator. If you remember, second harmonic generation is taking two low frequency waves and producing one high frequency wave. And here we're going to take one high frequency and split it into two lower frequencies. So it's the time reverse. Curious last time how that melded with our picture of the polarization being nonlinear. The answer was time reversal symmetry. The better answer is that picture that we had is sort of a incomplete picture. It's, it has some useful intuition behind it, but it doesn't encompass the entire range of interactions. Okay, so OPO means we have a pump wavelength. That's the highest frequency that we have. That's, we call it the pump because that's what's driving the interaction. And two different wavelength fields get produced. One we call the signal, the signal, one we call the idler. So here, instead of talking about the frequency, the question is phrased in terms of the wavelengths. <coughs> but we want to find the tuning curve between the signal and the idler. 
Um, tuning curve means as we adjust the angle of the crystal at different angles, we'll have different wavelengths combinations at which phase matching occurs. And so we'll get different wavelengths for the signal and idler that are produced at different angles. So wait, this is like we pick an angle and we choose a normal shell that intersects? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So you pick an angle, yeah. right? And then instead of saying that's the angle where two normal shells at specific wavelengths intersect, you say what wavelengths have normal shells that will intersect there. Um, and depending on the angle you choose, there may or may not be a solution. What we'll find is there's only a very narrow range of angles that gives a solution, and small variations within that range produce wildly different values for these, uh, these wavelengths. Okay, so this is being pumped at, oh, so it's a BBO crystal, beta barium borate. Again, this is a crystal, you'll never hear that name again, it's BBO. Um, it's pumped at 532 nanometers. Interestingly enough, where does 532 nanometer light come from? Heaney. Nope, 632 is Heaney. Close. Yes. This is 532. Um, this laser pointer used to be about 500 bucks. It's now, I got it for under 10 bucks on eBay. I just bought all the components in this in a big, on a big optical rail for 5,000 bucks for the graduate optics lab next year. Turns out I could have spent 10 bucks <laughs> and uh, had Jose mount them on the, on the optic mounts. And, and that's what I'll do next time. But um, All right, so inside of this, there are three things. There is a laser diode at 808 nanometers. That's infrared. It pumps a neodymium vanadate disk. That It's the neodymium that's the active element that produces laser gain. That's at 1064 nanometers. That gets frequency doubled in a KDB, K, KTP, potassium titanol <coughs> phosphate um, crystal. Type 2 phase matching, for what it's worth, to produce this green output. Okay, so if this started as 1064 nanometer light, its frequency doubled to 532, then we should at least know one possible solution. Right, at some angle, we should be able to take this 532 nanometer light and, through the magic of what, Akira? Yes, we should be able to get output at what wavelength? 1064. 1064, where the signal and the idler are both at 1064. That's the degenerate case. As we tune the angle away from that, one of these will go down in wavelength, the other one will go up. Right, if we tune the angle in the other direction, there will be no solution. We'll see that in a second. Okay, so um, we need conservation of energy. That constrains the relationship between the frequencies. Frequency is proportional to 1 over wavelength. So we can say that 1 over the signal plus 1 over the idler equals 1 over the pump. It's conservation of energy. Phase matching, which we wrote as n1 omega 1 plus n2 omega 2 equals n3 omega 3. Um, Again, we relate the omegas to 2 pi c over lambda, and the 2 pi of c's all cancel. We write this as n1 over lambda s plus n2 over lambda i equals n3 over the pump frequency. And we just need to be sure that this n3 
is the index at the pump frequency. This index is the pump is the index at the idler, and this index is the index at the signal. And I said it was type one phase matching in this example. Type one phase matching tells me the lower indices are both what polarization? Ordinary. ordinary. And this one is extraordinary. So these two are just um, are functions of wavelength. This one is a function of wavelength and angle, but the wavelength is already given. So this one's a function of just angle. So as this one changes an angle, these have to this these wavelengths have to change for that to match it. Okay, so I mean you can write these equations. Solving them is another matter. Um, these really I suggest doing numerically in Mathematica or MATLAB. Um, so if we combine conservation of energy and conservation of momentum, we can just take the 1 over 532 here, and the left side of this will substitute in for the 1 over 532 there. This left-hand side I've written right there in place of the 1 over 532, and I combine the two constraints into one single constraint that needs to have a solution. Okay, This is going to be a transcendental equation. Um, well, yeah, so you don't know lambda s, lambda i, or theta, but what you do is you say, okay, pick a theta and find a combination of lambda s and lambda i that satisfy that. Pick a new theta. All right, so here's the code in Mathematica. We've defined our two constraints, conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, just as we had in the uh, analytical expressions. We write a function for the index of refraction of the ordinary wave and extraordinary wave. These are the Selmayer equations. Um, and then we write an expression for the extraordinary index as a function of angle. Right, that, that's uh, where it's sort of this term right here, that, that term for an ellipse. And we just have to make sure that the values for NO and NE that we plug in are functions of wavelength. And then we ask Mathematica to numerically solve, because if you just tell it to solve, it's not going to get anywhere. These two equations, the two constraints, um, for the two angles you have. And these two equations call these, these functions that define the indices that get evaluated in those equations. Um, so analytically, it's pretty straightforward. Mathematica will crank out a solution. Um, and here I've asked it to plot that solution. And what we see is this. This is called the tuning curve. Here's the angle in degrees. And here are the different wavelengths that satisfy this. We can check that when the wavelengths come together, when there's only a single solution, that is 1064 nanometers. That's what we expected. And as we tune away from that in one direction, there is no solution. As we tune away in the other direction, we find that as the lower wavelength wave, which we call the idler, goes down in wavelength, the signal has to go up. Um, and so you can adjust the angle over half a degree or so and tune the signal from 
well, through about 60% of the wavelength, right? From 1 micron to 1.6 microns. So very small changes in angle produce very large changes, in this case, in the, uh, the output because the phase matching is so sensitive. So any vertical line going through this would solve the equation? So any vertical line gives you the two wavelengths that come out. The if the vertical line is at the wrong angle, there may be zero solutions. Um, and this doesn't continue indefinitely. Um, it just abruptly ends. It does cut off, yeah. So um, what this tells you, though, is that this device can be used to produce a tunable source of coherent radiation. Essentially, it's like a tunable laser. It's not a laser. It's a nonlinear device. It's not storing energy in the material from a pump. It's just uh, parametrically converting the energy in the pump immediately into different frequencies. And by adjusting the angle, you can tune it over a very large range. Um, ordinary lasers operate at a single frequency that's not, typical lasers are not easily tuned. In order to have tunability, you need a, a gain material with m a complex energy level structure. Um, and there aren't, so the common tunable lasers are the dye laser and the titanium sapphire and other, um, other, other we call it rare earth doped solid state lasers. Um, none of them operate in the beyond one micron. So this is sort of the only tunable source of near-infrared, mid-infrared. Different, different materials, different types of phase matching allow this tuning curve to extend into the mid-infrared. So it's a common source of coherent radiation in the mid-infrared, mid and near-infrared. It's not a laser. So laser operation. Anybody know what you need to have a laser? Cavity gain. Population inversion. All those are right answers. So a laser looks like this. You have a material that has some energy level spectrum. Those energy levels are the quantized energy levels that correspond to different quantum mechanical states of the system, whether they be electronic SPDF orbitals of an electron or whether they be um, rotational energy of the nucleus or whatever they, they are. Um, you get discrete energy levels. You pump it with energy. That energy can come from a laser diode in the case of the, um, well, yes, in the case of the laser pointer. It can come from a flash lamp that's just blasting it with light. Um, it can come from a chemical reaction, in case you want to put one of these in space and shoot down missiles. Um, in a Heaney laser, it comes from electrical discharge across high voltage capacitor. That energy goes into exciting atoms in the, that were in the ground state. And at room temperature, most of the atoms would be in the ground state. The population follows a Boltzmann distribution. So most of the population is down here. Let's say you have broad wavelength excitation. So this might be a flash lamp, just, uh, like a flashbulb. 
then if I plot this range of energies, um, so these different frequencies, I don't want to say this. This is the intensity, the plot of frequency, and frequency looks like the energy in a single photon divided by h. So a range of frequencies over which you have intensity, I mean there's a range of uh, energy levels that you can pump to. And so you can excite population into the upper state levels that are reachable by this amount of energy. And if you have enough population in the upper state um, such that it's greater than the population in one of the lower states, that normally doesn't happen in a, thermally, in a thermal system in thermodynamic equilibrium. That does not follow a Boltzmann distribution. If that's the case, then when a photon comes in with an energy level difference corresponding to a transition from a populated state to an unpopulated state, before if that required an increase in energy, then the photon got absorbed. If it requires a decrease in energy, it stimulates a transition and causes one of these to fall, and that gives off a photon. It is the exact same quantum mechanical state as the photon that stimulated it. So you have a single photon going in, and then multiple photons coming out. You put this whole thing around between mirrors, and that stream of photons cascades until you get a large number of photons, a large amount of energy in a single quantum state, meaning a single, among other things, uh, direction of the beam. And that's your laser. And typically, these upper state energy levels have some finite width, and that means some finite lifetime. So you pump the energy into this state, and it stays there for something, might be on the order of microseconds waiting for a photon to come by and stimulate it. And in this OPO, you don't actually have an upper energy level corresponding to absorbing a photon and then re-emitting. Instead, what you have, if you were to draw an energy level diagram, is you have population in the lowest state. You have a single high energy photon coming in. So let's see, high energy means blue. that would pump one of these up to a, an energy level, but there's physically no actual energy state there. So the atom or the molecule can't stay in that energy level. It's, if you like, its lifetime is zero, so its energy level spread is infinite. So any, any energy level can be achieved. And then that can decay. If it decays into one blue photon, then you just get out what you put in. We just call that transmission or can decay, I drew that red is a lower energy than green, I should draw it like this. That can decay into two photons coming out. Like so. But again, with green drops of virtual level too? So yeah, this is a virtual level. 
right? Because we can get any anything in between. Were the green and the red Nope, that, that, that was a curious question. So this point right here is also a virtual level. And where any place where these are real levels, you get enhan an enhanced effect. Call it a resonant effect. Um, so it's, it looks a lot like a laser. Um, but because this uses virtual energy levels, they can be tuned to any value. Whereas a laser requires fixed energy levels, the advantage there is you can store the energy you can extract it in a pulse at times that are different than when you put it in. You can't do that with the OPO. You send in a pulse pump, you get out pulsed photons at the exact same time. You send in a CW pump, you have to get out CW photons. Uh, when you said if, it, if, it, if the green one decays to a real energy level, then could not, wouldn't that prevent the red one? Because the, the, the real energy level could have a finite lifetime. Right. Yes. And that we call. Um, Raman frequency shift, Raman scattering, when that happens. Yeah. Well, it's called Raman scattering if it's a vibrational energy level. Um, but we, we, we'd call that scattering as opposed to a nonlinear interaction. So, okay, if it does decay to a real energy level, we're not doing uh, It's not three-way mixing because you don't have a third photon coming out. Um, well, what do we do with, so let's say the signal is the green one, what do we do with the red one? Well, you can do, there's a lot you can do. You can filter it up. If you don't care about it, you don't want it interfering with the, your detector downstream, just filter it out, put in a narrowband filter that eliminates it. Um, you can monitor it, for example, monitor it in a spectrometer. To, if you know what the wavelength of, say, the idler is, you know the wavelength of your pump, you can infer the wavelength of the signal without having directly measured it. So without having to pick off your signal and monitor its wavelength, you could do that. Um, other interesting things you can do, it turns out that these photons have correlated quantum states. So if for example, this has a spin of uh, if this has a spin of plus one, right? Then, well, not quite that simple. Um, the quantum numbers from the energy and momentum conservation require that the quantum numbers of these be correlated in order to match energy and momentum of this one. You can take <coughs> a lot of interesting sort of uh, Schrodinger's cat experiments use OPOs. The idea is you can split these beams, send them in opposite directions. You can measure the quantum state of this one. So for example, if you know that this is spin up in the z direction, and then you measure the spin of this in x or y, Right, that's a superposition of spin up and spin down. And whatever this one is, that one has to be the opposite. So by measuring this one, which can be physically separated from this, you can then infer the value of this in a different point. So OPOs are used to try to, have been used extensively 
to look for superluminal information communication. So, I mean, there's interesting physics that comes from that can be can use these devices besides just the fact that you have a tunable source of, of radiation. But I mean, some parts of your transmission, right? Right. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Yep. I mean, I'm not very happy with it, but. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so, the, so the, from here on out, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the wave equation, derive things, look at the math. Um, look at what happens when you don't have phase matching, how the interaction proceeds, um, some of the engineering that you can do to address instances where you don't have phase matching. Um, but rather than start that with five minutes left, I suggest we wrap up here. Very good. Sometimes it's all like, uh, 